0: Hi, Bobby fans, and welcome to PO Forecast episode 70. Well, after four or five weeks off due to the circumstances, we're back with another episode. Joining me on the podcast today uh, is Ian Dark, and returning is Andy Mitchamore to co host his episode with me. Andy, how are you, mate? Hello,
3: mate. Not too bad, yeah. Working from home, staring at the sun from inside for most of the day, um, and doing my one bit of exercise, and yeah it's all pretty miserable isn't it really just avoiding the news and looking forward to being back at fratton
0: yeah massively mate so you've not been going out to brighton beach or or whatever with the inner sun
3: uh no i've I've not been i've not been a uh what's the right word don't, i don't like swearing on the pod um i've not been one of those people that thinks it's fine to go and give other people a virus no
0: no cool good <laughs> stuff <mate>. good stuff <laughs> um yes yeah, so we started the podcast talking to uh commentator ian dark obviously lifelong porter fan as well So Skype managed to cut off the first 30 seconds of the episode. So just introducing it, I'll just ask Ian the question after the nice welcomes of how he became a Pompey fan um, and a little bit about his first game that he's attended. So here's the interview with me and Andy and Ian Dark.
2: This was not long after Pompey had been champions of England two years running. The atmosphere was great. What they used to do in those days is they'd open the ground uh, in the corner at the Fratton end for the last quarter of an hour, and you could come in and watch for free. So my dad took me, I think, for the first time when I was about five. I was sitting on his shoulders and watched the last 15 minutes of Pompey playing Sunderland, and I was hooked from that moment on. It was under floodlights. It must have been one of the very first games under floodlights. Um, and, yeah, I was just absolutely – it was a jaw-dropping experience, watching all the faces and the colour and, and – and, the, the green bays of the pitch. And uh, yeah, from that point on, I, I, I was going every week. I even used to go and watch the reserves.
3: So what, what were the attendances like at that point when it was a bit um, a bit less restricted in terms of capacity and people coming in late?
2: Well, uh, huge attendances. They used to pack people in. And I remember they used to put up big numbered signs, which I think must have been a guide to the club about... Uh, there were enough people in in such and such a section. But I remember it being very, very tight. I mean, I remember as a kid being taken one night and Pompey were playing Manchester United, the Busby-Babes team.
1: Mm. And
2: it wouldn't have been too long, can't have been too long before the actual crash in in Munich and Roger Byrne and Duncan Edwards were playing. Mm. And my dad had told me about what a great team this was. And I was... Just, I remember sitting, I was lifted over the top of the crowd at the front end and, and sat on the wall. Imagine that now. Sat <laughs> on the wall behind the goal. And I think Roger Byrne put in his own net. And and I think it was 3-3, three, 3-2. Three, three, I, I can't remember that bit because I was still very young. But yeah, there were huge crowds.
3: Amazing. And at this point, was your was your goal to be a player or have you always been... <laughs> More interested in the media side of it or were you the standard young boy who wants to be out there playing in 15 years time
2: well i used to play on the right wing for francis avenue junior school um and i <laughs> got in the team when i was very young i was playing against kids who were four years older so i got knocked about every every week but i was a right winger so my hero was peter harris who would have played a lot more times for England than he did if Sammy Matthews hadn't been around.
1: Mm. Um, <laughs> Tough competition, player,
2: brilliant winger. I think, I think he scored five in, four or five one night against Aston Villa. So I tried to be like him. Yeah, I wanted to be a footballer, but uh, of course, um, like most kids that I later discovered, I wasn't going to be good enough. <laughs>
3: could, could you describe to us what Fratton Park was like as a ground at that point compared to how it is now? Because the, the vast majority of our listeners would have started going to Fratton in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. what what were the main differences?
2: Well, as far as I can remember, um, there were fairly rudimentary floodlights. I think most Pompey fans will know that the first ever football league game to take place under lights was at Fratton Park, Mm -hmm. Pompey against Newcastle, in 1956. So I remember that. There weren't very many seats. There were seats in what is now the South Stand, just like there are today. And I think there were seats on the, on the North Stand. But apart from that, everybody just stood up. The, the Milton End was taller, I think, back then. And, and they used to do this weird thing... <laughs> Way back when, and I'm making the sound South sound a bit geriatric, but I the think the halftime scores. Never mind smartphones and and, and getting <laughs> updated scores on your phone. Nobody nobody had anything like that at all. We used to find out the scores from the other games. This guy would walk along and put a. A big metal sign along A <laughs> and A would be Blackpool v Chelsea. And he, so he'd walk along with the sign and said nil, then he'd walk along with another one, one, <laughs> nil, one. So, he, so it took about 20 minutes to find out those sort of half time scores from the other games. And um, these were being put up well into the second half. And when Pompey played away in those days, a lot of people used to go and watch the reserves because the only way of keeping up to date with how they were getting on was this guy had come out with a little microphone and walk up to this microphone saying, and the latest score from Bolognese is Wolverhampton Wanderers 3, Portsmouth 0. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So when I first started uh, covering, uh, uh, not covering, watching Pompey as a kid, um, they were in the years where they were starting to decline. And, of course, they got relegated uh, in the late 1950s. So the news from those away games was nearly always bad.
0: So you've been, you've been used to that a little bit then through the tough times, Ian, that we had, we had later on. It's nothing new to you in that sense.
2: Absolutely not. You, you try to learn to be philosophical but usually fail hopelessly. I still get worked up. I'm still a nervous wreck even if i'm working and covering a game somewhere while Pompey are playing i still have my phone and usually my son's at the game and he's sending me updates so i even when i'm working i've got i've got to confess to this i'm sneakily just looking at my phone to see if there's <laughs> an update on the Pompey game <laughs> which <laughs> i shouldn't be doing but i can't help
0: it <laughs> i think oh, we'll all, all be the same there. just um obviously moving on to your to your career i suppose journalism is a really competitive field um was it your first job you had working for the, for the Portsmouth News in journalism?
2: Yeah, I worked on the Portsmouth Evening News. Yeah. And I, that was my first job as a, as a journalist, um, sort of late 1960s time, like as a junior reporter. Uh, and I ended up getting fired because um, the editor hated long haired junior reporters and I was a long haired <laughs> junior reporter. So we wow. fell out and I went off to a weekly paper um, where where I uh, somehow I was the chief reporter, but there were only three reporters there. That's why I was the chief one because I'd come from some evening paper. It was <laughs> and and because I was a chief reporter, I got landed a job a couple of years later on BBC Radio Leicester, um, and that's where I started broadcasting. That's how it all started. Be be, be doing. Uh, so I used to do news, and then later I did sport, and then even later than that, I started doing commentary.
3: So doing a few bits sort of starting off on the media side did you find it reasonably easy to disconnect yourself from the emotion of it or when you were doing write-ups or and has that got easier you know as you've moved through your career or is it quite difficult to remain objective even if you're producing a piece for a a paper or or commentating a game where um, it's not necessarily a Pompey specific audience is it quite easy to remain objective do you think?
2: Yeah, and I recently had that experience covering the, the Portsmouth Arsenal FA Cup tie. Mm. Um, earlier in the season, Pompey were on, you might remember, against Harrogate on yes, the BBC, yes. yeah, Pompey Sport, and they asked me, you know, do you want to do that game? And I said, oh, I don't think I probably should, you know, because somebody else should probably do the game, because I think you know, quite a few people know I'm a Pompey fan. Um, but then the Pompey Arsenal game came up later on, and they said, "Well, you know, we, we'd quite like you to do it with all your knowledge of, of, of Portsmouth." Um, I thought, mm, "Yeah, I'd quite like to do it." So I did it. I did that game, and the answer, to answer your question, I do find it quite easy to to just call the game objectively, even though obviously I'm I'm, I'm hoping one team wins, mm. but something kicks in, a professional thing kicks in, you you have to leave any any bias to to one side. And I'm happy to say a lot of people did say to me after that game, I'd have never guessed that you were a a Pompey fan. But I do remember another game, uh, just to underline the point, um, back in Pompey's Premier League days, where they lost at home to Charlton. I think in the last minute of a game, they dominated. And I remember doing the the payoff at the end in in a very neutral way and saying, what a great win for Charlton. They've stolen it, three vital points for them to take back to London, ended the broadcast, and I remember slamming the microphone down in anger, and <laughs> really breaking it. Yeah,
3: out. I think I remember being at that game actually. That that distinctly rings a bell. Conceding in the last minute against Charlton, I think I was at that game. Um, is yeah. the is the um the the objectivity you just talked about? How much of of that is requested of you by whoever your employer is, and how much is that your own professional choice? Because there are some pundits on on a variety of uh, of channels who I don't think would even claim to be truly objective, especially if you're looking at Champions League games, for example, if you're looking at the, the very top end of football, especially when playing non-English opposition, it's normally fairly obvious that there's some sort of, I, think, I think bias is probably too strong a word but there's probably yeah. some sort of preference. Is that, so is it a personal choice on your part to be objective or, or is it asked of you?
2: No, it is, I mean very much, first and foremost, it's my own professionalism because I don't think Anybody wants to hear a commentary now. Go back to that Portsmouth Arsenal game. If you're an Arsenal fan, and let's be honest, most people more, there are more Arsenal fans than Pompey fans because it's a big club. They don't want somebody call, calling the game in a sort of amateurish, biased, or blinkered way. Um, so you owe it you owe it to, to the viewers to do that. But I think your your own broadcasting organisation would also. Demanded as well, so yeah, call call the game in, in an even-handed way, um, and yeah, that's something that that is just um, it's just inbred in a way because I remember too Alan Parry, who's a good friend of mine who works on Sky Sports now. For a while, Sky stopped him covering Liverpool games because of some perceived bias, which he took as a great insult, uh, mm. and it was an insult as well uh, because. Alan's way too much of a professional, but and in the end, I think they relented and realised it was a bit ridiculous.
3: Mm. I think it's interesting how it's that sort of um, personal, well, whoever you support is encouraged in some areas of the media. So, for example, if you look at soccer Saturday, for example, on Sky, and if if yeah. you have a, or if, if Southampton concede a the goal, they'll cut straight to Matt Letizier, for example, because I guess they're getting for that that comedic reaction. Um, yeah, what Jeff, was... Jeff
2: Sterling, Jeff Sterling and Jeff Selling goes crazy about Hartley Paul. Yeah, exactly, that's all okay. exactly. It works on, it works on that programme. It can even work with the studio pundits. I think you mm. know, people know Gary Neville played all his career for Manchester United, um, but I think he's pretty even-handed when he calls Manchester United matches. In fact, he's often very, very critical about very critical, yeah. Yeah, he
0: Manchester is, United
2: yeah. as well. So is so, so Paul Scholes when he works for BT Sport. So is Rio Ferdinand being... So, sometimes it can almost work the other way round, where because you uh, care so much about a club, you're even more critical when things go wrong.
3: Mm. Yeah, you can see it in their eyes when someone like yeah Neville last year, or or Roy Keane, for example, you can see it in in their eyes when they're personally hurt by what's happening at the club. So,
0: absolutely. Do you think there's a, a big difference when you're commentating on someone like Sky um, rather than something like radio on the BBC? Do you think there's a lot more feedback or do you feel any pressure or, or criticism possibly that could come from commentating on such a big stage?
2: Try not to think about that sort of thing. But of course, I think one thing that say the likes of, of John Watson and Barry Davis um, and Brian Moore, the great late, late great Brian Moore for, for their career. 30, 40 years ago in the main, they didn't have to put up with social media. They didn't Mm, have to put up with finishing a game and going on Twitter and and find out you were being slagged off and accused of this, that, and the other and being called everything under the sun. Um, We've all had to go used to that. Personally, my answer to it has been in recent times, I just don't look at notifications because mm. a lot of it is tribal nonsense. It really is. Uh, yeah. Most of the things people say uh, and they accuse you of being biased. And I've, I've rep- replied a couple of times to people who've been quite ridiculous and said, if you really want to know who I support, it's Portsmouth, where I was born. So I don't yeah. have, I don't root for any team in the Premier League. Least <laughs> of all Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool. So you know, basically, and you, you're you're mentally thinking come on
0: get lost yeah so supporting yeah. pompey actually gives you a bit of an edge in a good way in that people can't actually criticize you for being um yeah for basically supporting one of the premier league teams and be and being biased um moving on i suppose there must be a difference because you actually around 2010 you, you moved to work for espn who, who got the rights for the um, for the world cup and um, rather than sky sports is there a different way you have to approach commentating when you're when you're in the US, um, or or is it just very similar and very transferable to the same market?
2: I think it's pretty transferable to the American market because it might surprise a lot of fans in England. There is a, a very knowledgeable soccer, as they would call it, audience in the United States now. That wouldn't have been true twenty years ago. It is now because they can watch La Liga, they can watch the Bundesliga they can watch Italian football, they see the Champions League, they watch the World Cup, um, and the, the fees, the TV fees that they're forking out to, to cover those games, they're going through the roof these yeah. days. So it is quite a knowledgeable audience. The only thing I'd say is I think they just like a little more energy, as they would call it in, in the broadcast. They like it to be quite dramatic. But generally speaking, I, I call the games in, in pretty much the same way that I would call a game in England. Other than that, I do, I do think they, they like a little bit, maybe more rapport between commentator and co-commentator to go on. They don't want it to, to feel, and, and this is a pretty good point that maybe you know that English commentators could learn from, is sometimes you'll hear a commentary, and really the two people commentating could be sitting in two different parts of the ground for all the rapport there is between them so I think a little bit of crossfire and if you can lighten the mood a little I think that's good Mm. how often
3: how often are you in a situation now where you're you you commentate on a game with someone that you've not done so before or is it mostly a case of there's a there's a fairly small pool of commentators at, at the top level so you know everyone fairly well
2: um, it's quite a big variation of, of, of people that you work with over, over time in, in a season so I I work quite a bit with Robbie Savage, the way things carve up these days at uh, BT Sport, a mm-hmm. fair bit with Steve McManaman, though not as much as I, I used to. Um, Glenn Hoddle, I work with Owen Hargreaves, so uh, they're using him more in the studio these days and not quite so much on, on commentary, so it, it's quite a It's quite a broad range of people, and sometimes John Hartson has has done a few. So you have to adapt to each person you're working with. And uh, Martin Keown, another one who does games with us. So that takes a certain kind of skill because you you have to kind of learn the rhythms and the way they like to do it and and fit around that. Mm. Who
3: do you find it? Easy or most natural to to work alongside without having to change your your natural commentary style.
2: Um, I wouldn't want to kind of start. Okay. You don't like use a name drop. Okay. You, you, you yeah. Start, you start to upset people if you say, "Well, <laughs> I, I really prefer working with him, and I don't like working don't like working with him." But it, it's fair to say that some people are easier to work with sure. than, than others. I'll I'll leave it at that. <laughs>
0: I was just going to say, going, going quickly back to um, the states. Um, I've listened to a little bit of um, MLS commentary. I know the guys who commentate for Atlanta, um, a guy called Jason Longshaw and a few other guys there. Um, they've got quite a quite a banterous relationship, I suppose. Listening to um, to their commentary um, with the rise in in football um, in the MLS, um, do you think that it's sort of that idea of footballs for everybody? Because the women's football game has really grown over there, hasn't it?
2: Well, women's soccer is, is huge in the United States, and a, a very good reason is they're the best team in the world, as they showed at the World Cup. Um, I don't think they've ever failed to get uh, anywhere less than the semifinals. Uh, so all the girls, and a, or a very big proportion of them in, in the United States growing up, play the game. Um, there are even like what, what are called soccer mums. who who take their girls out to play. So they're picking from a lot of people. Um, Yeah, women's soccer is bigger in the United States than it is in England, uh, probably bigger than it is anywhere in the world. So that's that's a big big part of it. Um, Major League Soccer, well, you get a lot of people there wondering and asking you, can it be as big as the Premier League? At the moment, it can't be. But then what other leagues can be, really, because that's where most of the money is at the moment mm. in the Premier League. So that's an unfair comparison. But yeah. Major League Soccer probably is comparable with the second tier of leagues around Europe. And it, it gets, well, very big crowds in somewhere like Atlanta, like 50,000. Yeah, it's uh, huge massive, there, isn't it? Massive there.
0: Massive, mm. massive there,
2: massive in Seattle, massive in Portland, uh, pretty big in Kansas City. You know, so it's flourishing in the, the, and MLS is growing.
0: Do you, think that's
3: partially, do you think that's partially because of the grassroots improvement in the USA? Because historically it's kind of been, I don't know the word gimmick, that's probably too strong a term, but it's where big names have gone and it's sort of drawn tem- temporary attention. So you've got Rooney's, Latan, sort of going back a bit, Beckham, Kaka, all mm-hmm. playing over there. And it was all a bit big name in a, a team of people you hadn't necessarily heard of. Do you think now there's a bit more focus on you know, the other 10 players in the team other than the big name from Europe?
2: I think there's a deeper understanding of the game over there now. They, they realize it's not going to be a 6-6 six, six draw. Um, they can appreciate a match, which is a, a dramatic one, that, that might end 2-1, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think particularly, too, and the age group where it's really growing, and, and surveys and marketing has shown that, is between young guys between the ages of 15 and 34. And on one of, the, one of those surveys, soccer came out number two to the NFL. So that, that kind of shows you, I mean, a whole generation is growing up there now, as I was explaining earlier, who have seen all the major European leagues. And one of the problems Major League Soccer's got there is people can see that, that Major League Soccer isn't yet at that kind of level. So there's the problem, just growing it beyond where it is at the
0: moment. And you've got that, um, I remember goals, I remember American players coming over here. You had the likes of Landon Donovan um, playing over at Fulham. And I, I think you yep. commentated, didn't you, on that that 2000, um, was it 2010 goal against Algeria <laughs> that you scored in the last yes. moment? Um, I think that's yep. a, that's one of the sort of famous moments that sticks out for me in, in US like men's football anyway. Um, do you think moments like that really have helped push on push on football or soccer, as they call it in the States.
2: Absolutely true. And you, you've picked on a very, very good example there because just to, to tell people who, who might not remember or, or appreciate, the United States were going out of the World Cup that day. There was seconds of the game left. Landon Donovan suddenly scored a goal which sent them from bottom of the group to top of the group. We got reports uh, of people... Holding parties, celebrating, pouring drinks on Wall Street, um, going down to bars to celebrate. This was unheard of. It became the lead story above all the usual um, mainline American sports on all all the bulletins. Now, I used a line in commentary. I don't know why I said it. It just came out in that explosive moment. I just said, go, go, USA, which, which is a kind of American thing to say, but I was aware it was an American audience. And it was, you know, a highly charged moment for the United States and the game. And I think, you know, it was a, it was a it was a call. I got a lot of reaction to that call from American uh, in, in the American media, and it, it it kind of changed my career. And it was the reason I got offered that job with ESPN in America.
3: And that was completely off the cuff. No, uh, that's that's another thing that you must get asked yeah. a lot. I guess is whether or not when something dramatic happens at the end of the game, whether it is always truly off the cuff or whether you have a a think beforehand about particularly catchy cliches, phrases you can throw in?
2: Well, (laughs) I think sometimes you wouldn't be doing your job if you, for instance, let's go back to Manchester City winning the title with that late goal by Sergio Aguero. Mm. Now, of course, you can't can't script a goal. You can't script anything in football. It's a 90-minute ad-lib. But Mm. we wouldn't be doing our job if we hadn't thought this is going to be a moment. They were at home to Queen's Park Rangers. They just had to win. They're probably going to win the title today. So you would think of a few lines that you might deliver in the event of of that actually coming to pass and and what Mm. it meant for Manchester City. So, yes, but can you call the actual goal and the moment? Could Martin Tyler do that? Aguero! I hmm. You can't yeah. say it. it happens. It happens as it happens. And, and, and one thing I'd say about all commentary calls is you can hear them maybe the next day or even years later and they don't sound the same because you, you know what happens. They are all of the moment and should only be judged as being of the moment. So you hope, really, you, you hope your experience and professionalism um, that the right words come out and mm. you can do the moment justice. You don't always manage to do it. Sometimes you'll listen back to something and think, ah, that, that probably wasn't as good as it, it should have been. Another time you <laughs> might listen, and, and in a way the Go USA one um, was certainly in that category, and I'm sure Martin Tyler would tell you the Aguero one was in the category, first, where, yeah, that worked.
0: Are there any games that you saw that you did anyway and you did look back on and go, damn, I really missed an opportunity there to, to say something big.
2: I can't think of an example right off the top of my, my head. Mm. I, I remember doing the game between Brazil and Germany when Germany won 7-1 at the world cup, um, in the semi-final, mm. astonishing game. And I was thinking all the way through the last few minutes, I should be able to come up with something really telling here. Yeah. A really, a really great line. Uh, yeah. And it wouldn't quite come. I, I'm, sh- I'm sure we did the game and okay, and the, and the viewers weren't complaining about it. But I was, I was kind of re tapping my head for something memorable. Yeah, but epic. I think, I think, I think, I, I, I think I said something like in in the in the last seconds, or just as the, the whistle blew. This is a football match that people will still be talking about in a hundred years' time. Mm. Uh, but you know that was that was about the best I could do. Um, see, there was a, there was another one. If you, you ask him about these things, there was a natty little line we could have used when Arsenal beat Pompey in the FA Cup, and uh, Reese Nelson had a pretty good game, didn't he? And he set up. Uh, I think he set up one of the goals and yeah. um and I saw Henry Winter write the line the next day but of course he had a bit of time to think about it and I didn't and he said well he mm-hmm. said you'd always expect someone Gordon Nelson to do well in Portsmouth
3: <laughs> like, so
2: it. Thought, like it and I thought I wish I wish I thought of
3: that one <laughs> <laughs> but then I think that the, the situations in sport that are truly the most memorable are just the ones that are so unexpected it has to be organic I mean the, I was I was watching the, the last hour of uh, Ben Stokes beating the Australians at, at Headingley, wasn't it, earlier? And the commentary yeah. on Sky and on TMS, you could tell it was totally organic. I mean, you've yeah. got Alistair Cook on TMS literally just shouting no repeatedly down the microphone at one point. And he's the most restrained, calm individual, very middle class you can imagine. And so that, yeah. that organic commentary can, I think, be even more powerful than than yeah, having the, the perfect pun lined up, I guess, at the right time.
2: Exactly. It's about the pitch and, and, and timbre of your voice at, at that moment. That, that's, that's a part of it as well. Sometimes it can just be something impulsive and instinctive that you do, and you can hear the excitement in the commentator's voice. Mm. And I think you're not going to be able to do the job if you don't feel it. You've got to be able to feel it like the fans feel it.
0: I suppose it's big moments, isn't it, in history? And I suppose for some of the younger listeners listening, you've got moments like when Pompey were promoted from League Two. um, And it's about capsulising that feeling, isn't it, from the supporters, really, and what it means to them to really make a good line, I suppose.
2: Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that day, because that's one of my very favourite days, supporting Pompey. When you think of all the club has been through, or had been through, nearly going out of business, saved by its own fans and upheld by its own fans for, for four years and being down in the basement um, and finally escaping that basement after four years. Uh, and It was Jamal Lowe's game, wasn't it? With yeah. With those goals. Um, yeah, that was, I, I was, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, went, I went on the pitch with the rest of the fans at the end there at Knox County and I was chanting, the, 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 something tells me I'm into something good, Chant, and uh, nearly in tears.
3: No, that, it was a, that, that last, uh, the last day of the season at Cheltenham would have been very different if you'd been relying on that guy with the sign with all the different scores running around, wouldn't it? It would have been
1: <laughs> a lot more dramatic. <laughs>
2: thought. They, should, they should revive it just for one day. <laughs> nostalgia trip. When we, when we eventually get going again, goodness knows where we're going to be.
0: Sorry? No, no, definitely. When we get going, Andy... Um, yeah 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 yeah, yeah, for sure Um, where do you think commentary is going in the future Ian? Um, Obviously you've been part of the Amazon Prime team covering live streaming of the Premier League is that right? Um, Yes do you think that's the future now or or do you think that traditional media as such has a place um, which will continue to grow?
2: Um, Well there's one big blockage to doing all the games available at the same time and that is there is still in place um, the restriction where you cannot show Saturday 3 p.m. games because mm-hmm. it's going to affect the crowds in the lower divisions. And I think that's probably right. So if you've got Amazon Prime or whatever other channel um, managed to win the rights, having all the Premier League games on on Saturday afternoon, that is, you're going to get some fans, not the diehards, but maybe the more casual ones going, Do you know what, A bit cold, rainy day, mm-hmm. you'll stay in and watch the Premier League. So... It won't, happen. it won't happen with the Saturday afternoon games. But yes, I think there's something in it. I think it worked. Um, and you could see a day where all the games are going to be available on your phone somehow. I mean, who knows? Technology is moving so fast, it's hard to predict what would be available in even five years' time. It's a very different landscape, and, and everybody has to adapt to it.
3: Mm. Absolutely. Um, I think it would be remiss of us not to touch on current affairs a little bit, um, very briefly, as much as I'm trying to avoid yeah. the news as much as possible at the moment. Um, in terms of looking at the, the football business side of things, it obviously is not the priority at this moment in time, nor should it be. What in an ideal world would would you see as the optimal way of either finishing this season or drawing a line under this season with points per game or however you'd want to do it. What's your sort of optimal view of that?
2: Well, I think it's the right idea to try to finish the season if it can be safely done. And that's a big, big if. Because we're hearing reports that maybe the Premier League are thinking of finishing that division in biosecure stadiums as they've been described in, wow, in clinical. the
0: midlands. Yeah. So,
2: um, I don't know how that, that works because the rest of the season's been played out with everybody planning matches on their home grounds. So if you've played Manchester United um, at home already, so you don't have to play them away, you just have to play them in an empty stadium somewhere in the Midlands. That's yeah. not quite the same, <clears throat> is it? So has it been a fair competition? Um, so that's, 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 by the way, let, let, let's look at how's it going to work that, though, with all the games in the lower division? Surely they're going to have to go on inside the stadiums. And there's, here's another problem. A lot of people work around the match. It's not just the players. It's the bus drivers. Teams have to stay in the hotels. The, of Netflix, the rest of it. of my fans. What if just a couple of players from one team Go down with the virus? Does it all Mm. have to be called off again? I think there will come a point. I think this has to be. They have to get going again by the middle of June. And you're right, what you say. It's the last priority in the world right now. There are people, hundreds of people, dying. There are there are people who are following Pompey fans, Mm. season ticket holders. I'm sure who aren't going to be around. You know, so sadly, when this resumes. But going back to it and answering your question as a business, I think it has to, it has to be done and dusted really by in, in the 56 days from the middle of June on. And then after that, a, maybe a three-week break and then restart with a new season. But are they going to be able to play playoff matches and things like that? I don't know. But there might come a point where they're going to have to say, Do you know what, this isn't going to be possible. We're going to have to just call the se- write the season off and call it quits. And then you've got a big decision about how you decide promotion, relegation, what mm. you do about that, or whether you just say? Sorry, all bets are off. Everybody carries on in the same division they were in.
0: Cause it's quite different, isn't it? Cause I know in Belgium, they've called the season and declared club Bruges, basically champions, um, already. Yeah. Um, you've got different models as well around the world. So I know the NBA are thinking of doing their season finish in quarantine, effectively in Vegas. um, and there's been talks of the NHL, for instance, go driving all the way out to North Dakota, which for people who don't know where that is, is in the middle of absolutely nowhere, um, in order for the players to go to one location and not have to travel. So they can be locked down, they can be tested, they can do that first before playing against each other. I don't think mm. that's very, very transferable, though, is it, to, to football and, and the way we have all these different clubs in our league around the country? Well, no, it isn't, but
2: there's, there's no satisfactory solution to it, is there? No.
0: There's no, true. Easy,
2: there, are no easy, there are no easy answers here, and maybe everybody is going to just have to give way a little bit and compromise and say, if this is the only way we can finish it, we're all right, let's finish it that way. Um, and, and, and I don't know, they'll, imagine the arguments, even legal cases that clubs are going to be bringing. Look at Leeds, United, and West Bromwich Albany, who look like they're going to go. Back into the Premier League, what are they going to say?
3: Yeah, the loss of income. Yeah. And
2: says, well, I'm sorry, it's off. Well, we're told that promotion to the Premier League is worth the best part of 200 million pounds.
1: Yeah. So,
2: you know, on on, on and on it goes. It's an extremely, extremely, well, traumatic, unprecedented situation. And we only hope we can find some way out of it sometime.
3: Andy, anything else? Yeah, um yeah, I think I think the, the point you made that hit the nail on the head there is that there are going to be people that are going to be irritated and complain whatever whatever solution gets suggested, because there are going to be people that lose out and as a as a well, as a sport fan in general, you don't believe you're not going to get into the playoffs or automatically promoted until the first minute where you mathematically can't. So every yeah. single team who thinks they've got a shout of the playoffs or every single team who you know, us all the way down to, you know, Sunderland ish in the table are still potentially going to be harbouring hopes of grabbing one of the top two promotion spots in League One and yeah, there are gonna there are gonna be complaints, aren't there? Whatever happens.
2: Yeah, but I think you know what? I think some type the club somebody very mature at the football clubs might have to turn around and say, you know, after everything the world's been through, does this mm. really matter as much yeah. as we all thought it did? No. I tell you what, let's just call it quits and let's just get on with a new season whenever we can. They might have to say that it would take a big man to make it or a woman to make a to make a call like that. Mm. But you'd like to think somebody might make it somewhere along the line.
1: You we might like to
2: think that even Liverpool would say, "Yeah, we were going to end our thirty-year wait for the title." But something hit the world that nobody could have even expected and and we're just gonna have to shrug our shoulders and say we're gonna have to just take that on the chin that it that it was it was it ended so horribly would you but be up they, for that I think, you
1: know
0: rather than just calling the season, declaring Liverpool champions and uh, promoting, you know, automatic places and relegating automatic places, would you be more up for them for just resetting it rather than going like the Belgium league? Okay. Liverpool champions, um, you know, in the championship, Barnsley are relegated, for instance, and you promote the top two in league one. Do you reckon they're more like to call it quits and, you know, um, you know, just restart the season effectively rather than claiming people champions for the part they're up to now?
2: I think it's all a matter of timing. I think it's a, a question, isn't it, of, of how quickly things can return to at least some form of normality and the restrictions <laughs> are lifted. Um, the best case scenario is that they can get it done at some point in the summer behind closed doors and in pretty quick time. Although, of course, there is the problem of the players are going to need three weeks to get themselves back to to match sharpness for it to make any sense. So, sure. um, you know, they're, they're, talk, they're talking about the Football League players going back training on, I think it's May the 16th, isn't it? Yeah. So they'd have yes. a three-week run-up and then hopefully the season would start. But, you know, you look at the figures, when we look at them again today, uh, we don't know really, is it going to be okay in a month's time for footballers to go back training alongside each other?
3: We'd have um, a clue. <laughs> I would I'd think not, to be honest, but um, that's, that's more of a personal opinion. Um, I think what you're, what you're saying there is we're relying on there being 92 people with their heads screwed on and able to see the big picture um, in senior positions in, in each football club. Um, and I guess mm. we'll find out whether or not that's the case. I think it, yeah, it's, it's a nice way. Well, it's, it's, it's the optimal outcome, I guess. But you look at, was it Helmut Marko, the Red Bull so if he's the owner or quite senior in Red Bull, who suggested off the cuff that they should just make sure all the drivers, all the Formula One drivers, get COVID nineteen sooner rather than later to get it out of the way so they can move on with the season. And you hear these these ideas being thrown around that just that's blow true. your mind.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> but uh, well, anyway,
0: that's a staggering that's
2: a staggering suggestion. I, I, yeah, I
3: don't, I don't think it went down too well with the drivers. <laughs>
0: to <be honest>. no. <laughs> Is he volunteering himself as well? Was yeah, quite.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't think so. Anyway, we'll move away from, from that sort of current affairs. Um, to, we'll finish with uh, Pompey this season, uh, Ian. Yep. How, what's, your been, what's been your take on Pompey this season um, and what are your overall thoughts of what Kenny Jackett's done with the side since, since taking over from Paul Cook?
2: I think he's done a solid job, um, Kenny Jackett. He's had Pompey in the promotion race last season which ended disappointingly after leaving the table up until January. And from a bad start, he's turned it around this season and got Pompey into the promotion race. But I do think there are two Pompeys this season. There's the one that plays at Fratton Park and the one that plays away from home. Mm. Um, and just before this horrible break, Pompey, I think had lost three away games on the trot against promotion rivals and the team. Up those games, into them, and they've created very, very little. There's, the big thing, and all fans know it, everybody knows, it, the team is absolutely crying out for a non like type creator, somebody who can pass and set up goals uh, in, mm. in that area just behind the striker. Um, and that's very, very apparent. And that's a void that hasn't, unfortunately, been filled because I think if it had been filled, and it's not easy to fill it, not in League One, who is that player? <laughs> Why is he going to be playing in League One anyway? <laughs> and it's very difficult to make a signing in January to to, to do that. But um, I think they did okay in January this time, getting um, Seddon at left-back and, and uh, McGeehan. Mm. They've been okay, and they've come into the side much better than the previous January. But truthfully, although they team is useful and pretty hard to beat. I think there is a missing piece of the jigsaw, and that's why Pompey are not in the autom- automatic promotion mm. places and look like they ended up in, in the playoffs. So, of course, it is mighty tight.
3: Yeah, that's yeah. why we love the lower leagues. This is... Um, I think if we are... From most of the Pompey fans I know, in my own personal opinion, I share it, is that I would rather be in the Championship than the Premier League, because and I'd rather be in you know, League 1 than League 2, obviously, but the lower leagues from Championship down, it's there's something about it where you just have no idea what's going to happen week in, week out. I think that's one of the massive attractive parts of, of League 1 football is we can rock up to Fratton on a Saturday and feel like we're going to see a comfortable Pompey win and it will go completely the other way. And you never know what's going to happen within 20 minutes of the current, if you look at the Coventry game earlier this season against 10 and 9 men. Um, oh. You, you, you never know what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes, never mind in the next five games. Whereas I think the, the further up you go in the football pyramid into the Premier League, the more... Obviously, there are exceptions. You look at Liverpool-Crystal Palace this year, but for, for the most part, I think yeah, there's a little bit more predictability there. So Where, where would you like to see Pompey, Ian? Where's your, you, would you like to see us in the Championship? Is that sort of the optimal placement? Or would you want to see that climb back to the Premier League and be fighting for 15th and 14th?
2: Well, I think realistically, and I think historically, and um, of course, I was I was born in an area where Pompey were contesting for the the championship of of of, of England. Mm. Right, I was a little little baby, but um, I think the club's natural home is the second tier. Mm. It has yeah. been, and that's where I think I'd like to see Pompey operating in the championship. Um, getting to the championship and, and making a, de- a decent go of it. I think that's, that's a realistic ambition, I think, for a club of, of Portsmouth's size. And you'd like to think that the uh, Michael Eisner and his company would, would back the club to that point. I mean, what is really good about Pompey, and I think we have to step back in it, you think of, you think of the mess the club was in and how it nearly died. The club is sold when it's just announced a £2.1 million profit. Mm. Not many teams in the lower divisions are doing that. Um, And the club is generally going the right way. It definitely is going the right way. So one of these seasons, um, it might even be this one when it gets completed. If it gets completed, Pompey will make that climb into the second tier again. And um, I'll be the first on the pitch, punching the air to celebrate.
0: Yeah, and there are some fantastic grounds, aren't there, in the championship? I'm sure some of those teams you cover. But just on a fan basis, you know, I can't wait to potentially go away to to Nottingham Forest or or Derby or Leeds if they're still in that league. Um, I think that's mm. such a bigger stage, isn't it? And just just from an away day perspective, pretty exciting for a fan.
2: Yeah, well, most of the clubs in the in the championship are former members of the Premier League, so mm-hmm. it's any number of of big clubs and attractive. Fixtures, and it would be uh, it would be superb for Pompey to be mixing again at that sort of level.
3: Better than Prenton Park, you?
0: Don't be silly, mate. We love the up there. We love the up there. <laughs> <laughs> what, like, what about?
2: Lower, divi- the lower division grounds, um, like the League Two grounds, it was a novelty to begin with to be to be doing that and 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 seeing Pompey play there. Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. And you mm. wish all those those clubs. Well, especially in their current situation, but that not what he does wear off, and you know, like Sunderland, I'm sure they're thinking exactly the same. It, it it be it'll be great, and Coventry too. It would be great to be in the Championship, and but of course, the, it's a huge. I mean, there is a problem, of course, going into the Championship because the wages in the Championship are way way higher than they are in League One. So there's an issue there, I think, for the owners.
0: Yeah, completely. Where's the, um, where's the worst place groundwise wise Ian, you've been to and you thought, God, I don't want to come back here, maybe commentating as a fan? Uh,
2: well, the worst night I ever had in England commentating was on the roof at Port Vale. Uh, <laughs> you're going back to the early 90s and the early days of Sky Sports. It was an FA Cup tie. And conditions on that roof, I would say, were rather like being in the deck of a, a trawler in the Atlantic Ocean on a very windy, rainy <laughs> oh. night. Um, so I was, I was with Andy Gray commentating on Port Vale, within two minutes, Port Vale's white shirts with black numbers were just they'd become brown of, <laughs> of mud um, so the numbers were indistinguishable, I think they were playing Stoke in a local derby Stoke's numbers are awful anyway you know, they're like black numbers on red and white stripes, so they were difficult and our microphones kept shorting, so I think we went through six microphones in the course of the At the course of the broadcast, that's
3: reassuring when you're holding them. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So we had no idea whether what we were saying was even going going on air. It turns out it was, Um, but it was a mad, crazy night, and I was just soaked to the skin. I was, was, and I had to drive home afterwards. I had about four layers of clothes on because the rain had just gone through the
0: lot. (laughs) It was a derby as well, isn't it? So it must have been. It must have been quite a hostile atmosphere, really
2: it was yeah it was a hostile atmosphere i can't even i think i can't even remember the result i think stoke might have won (laughs) but um it it was it was it was a mad night and extremely difficult to commentate (laughs) they think it's glamorous you see
0: (laughs) (laughs) people don't realize they? even the roof of Port vale that's it. Even you're commentating that, you know, in Portsmouth are in the back of the, the south stand, aren't you? So it's not, um, it's again, no much more glamorous than the standard fan experience, really.
2: Well, the position I was commentating on the Portsmouth Arsenal game was, uh, was a bit lower than that. Um, it was too low, in fact, because they, they've got that position, haven't they, at Fratton Park, which is on the top of the stand. Yeah, it's a very small little area, so it was deemed unusable because I thought I'd have to be climbing up that vertical ladder. <laughs> yeah. sand, which I can tell you this yeah, I mean, that is a terrifying experience. You think you've got about a 50 50 chance of survival when you're climbing up there. Uh, I know John Watson refused to do it, and they had to build a lower position for him whenever he was down at, at, at Fratton Park, and, and then one or two other commentators. Um, just the same so they might have to look at, at, at brushing up uh, and get a getting a better tv position if they go up the
0: league mm. <laughs> yeah definitely um are you right right andy you got anything else to ask or you ready to close it off no
3: close it off mate i think we've okay. taken up
0: uh, enough of ian's time exactly ian thank you so much mate for coming on, on the podcast um it's really appreciated especially in these challenging times
2: uh, a great pleasure to talk to you to you fellows and uh play out pompey i guess
0: yeah exactly all right thanks again ian thanks really appreciate it cheers care. thanks a lot thank you
2: thanks bye bye. 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 cheers, cheers thanks,
0: guys bye. bye now bye thanks ian dark for coming on the podcast uh it was really appreciated and andy there was a lot in that wasn't there a lot of a lot of content of all kinds of different aspects to do with football
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, sort of the, those anecdotes that you, you don't normally get just from following the club from from the outside. Um, yeah, it's good to find out that John Motson had an entire new stage built for him um, at the at the ground because he didn't like heights too much. That's a sign you've made it in life, isn't it? When you can actually request someone builds a whole new stage for you to report on their football games. Yep, um, yeah, massively. But yeah, very interesting to hear what it's like on the other side of the fence. I mean, as you said in the interview, commentary gets a bit of a... A hype for being glamorous and being part of, you know, part of this big media circus that follows teams around. But when you hit the lower leagues, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure Jake Smith wouldn't claim that he's living the most glamorous life in the world doing Pompey life. But he that's is. not really that's not really why you do it. I don't think for the glamorous life you do it because because you love the football and because you love the club. I guess so that, when no, you're doing that at really. sort of the local radio level.
0: No, completely. We know it's not a, it's not a Dom on champagne and caviar experience, is it? Especially travelling up early away from home to these games up north and all that kind of stuff, mate. Um, you know, they do it for the passion and for the love and, uh, you know, that's good to see. Um, is there anything you want to touch on, Andy, before we close this episode out? Any, You know, we've already gone through all this, you know, coronavirus lockdown stuff, but should we tell everyone about the interview we've got next week instead?
3: Yes, so if uh, all goes as planned, we have got a chat with Mark Catlin again next week. So he joined us last year um, towards the end of the season to give his thoughts on the season as a whole and where he thought the club were moving towards, depending on how the season ended. Um, and he's the plan is he's coming on to do it again next week to talk through how this season has gone and where he sees the clubs moving towards. Obviously, it's going to be a slightly different conversation this year because there are so many other unknowns, whereas... Last year, we knew if we beat Coventry, beat Peterborough and beat whoever else, we'd, we'd go up. Whereas this year, a lot more of it is out of our hands. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to, to hear how things have been working inside the club. Because even for people as experienced as the Eisners and for Mark Catlin, this is it's a completely unprecedented situation. So it's interesting. it'll be interesting to hear how they're, how they're deal with, dealing with it and sort of playing it a day at a time
0: yeah exactly mate so yeah it's it's cool we've got mark cattlin on the podcast we'll of course put out uh the questions for you guys to get involved so tweet us up at po forecast or respond to the thread that we're going to put out there uh we'll try and get your questions to mark cool all right Pompey fans thanks for listening uh and until next time play out Pompey.